want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. <clears throat> and if you're perhaps new to the Bible, um, the letter to the Romans is in the New Testament. Um, there is the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and then Romans. We don't want to assume that that's all common knowledge to everyone, and it's a valuable thing uh, for all of us to grow in our familiarity with the structure of Scripture. For the next nine weeks, God willing, we are planning to give our attention to God's Word to us in Romans chapters 1 through 4, and then we'll pause, and then we'll come back and look at 5 through 8 and pause and come back. We'll make our way through this. And it's all under this banner of pure gospel. Ryan got us started last week. And today, my aim is to unpack Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17 with a particular purpose in mind. Um, and that is to, my, my purpose is to motivate you to eagerly and energetically preach the gospel to one another. Uh, you heard me right. Uh, I, I want to turn you all into preachers. Um, <laughs> and yes, you heard me right. I want to motivate you to preach the gospel to one another. Now, now don't leave yet. Um, <clears throat> and if you're watching on the live stream or the YouTube recording, don't turn off your devices just yet. I want you to hear me out. Hear the Apostle Paul out. I am not suggesting that you are all called by God to preach as I'm preaching to you right now, nor am I suggesting that everyone within hearing distance needs a conversion experience, <clears throat> though I'm certain some do. Um, but I do believe that the claim of Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17 is that for everyone, everyone, whether or not you have been made new by the grace of God, whether or not you have been joined to Jesus, whether or not you are a true Christ follower, the gospel of our Lord Jesus the Christ is relevant and necessary to be applied to every area of life, every day of our life. Let's say that again. The gospel of our Lord Jesus is relevant and it is necessary to be applied to every area of our life, every day of our life. And the only way this great gospel will be applied to every area of life is if we all proclaim it, all hear it, all entrust ourselves to it, and all apply it every day. So, here we go. <clears throat> I want to invite you, if you are able, and as an expression of regard for God's word, to stand with me, and uh, please follow along as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ 
for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's holy and authoritative, life-giving word. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, in, in these words is revelation. Is revelation from you, of you, to us. A revelation that by your grace has the power to bring about new birth, new life. It makes, it makes the hearts and souls of men and women and children new and alive. It begets trust. It begets believing. It begets treasuring and seeing and delighting and hoping and loving you. And that's what we would ask today, oh God, that we, would, we might experience this power this power of you, that these would not be just words written on a page, but they would be the very presence and power of God to give life and set us free and bring about a great salvation for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, one cannot read these opening verses of Paul's letter to the Romans and miss the fact that this guy, this guy is consumed with the gospel. According to verse 1, Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus set apart for the gospel of God. In verses 2 and following, Paul says of this gospel that there had been 
prior exposure among the Romans to the gospel as well as an effect on the Romans because of the gospel. And then in verse 9, Paul describes how it is the gospel that, that casts a tint on the heart and soul of every aspect of his own life and his ministry. It says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Verse 14, I'm under obligation. That is, I'm bound to proclaim the gospel. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then in verse 17, Paul begins to explain something of the substance and nature of the gospel. So here's this guy, Paul. He is consumed with the gospel. And because he's consumed with the gospel, captured by the gospel, arrested by the gospel, Paul is absolutely determined to preach the gospel, and he is eager to preach it face to face. Look at verse 9. I mention you, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. Verse 13, I have often intended to come to you. Thus far I've been prevented. Verse 16, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to get there. I want to be with you. Can't wait. Kind of like us, Paul had had it with travel restrictions. <laughs> He had had it with social distancing. He wanted to visit Rome. And who wouldn't want to visit Rome? I mean, if you've traveled much, you know something of this anticipation and eagerness that arises within you when you're looking forward to visiting someplace. I mean, people going someplace, when they get on the plane, you just know who they are. They're not the ones going home. The ones that are going someplace, they're all, oh, there's this buzz, you know. Ooh. Maybe you remember what that was like to travel <clears throat> a long time ago. Before COVID, before 9-11 maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, perhaps there are some of you here who've actually visited Rome. In fact, as I know at least one person here who has visited Rome, I mean, Italy is the place. If there's a place, um, it is the place that my wife would especially love to go. She, she even says that she thinks she may have been Italian in a prior life. Uh, <clears throat> What's not to love about the Italians, you know? Uh, their passion and their art and their architecture and the composers and, you know, the great tenors and the food. Who wouldn't be eager to go to Rome? But Paul's eager desire to visit Rome is not as a tourist. His passion about going to Rome is as an evangelist. And I believe that Paul's Energy and eagerness has something to do with his deep-seated conviction that he had a message. He had a message to proclaim. He has something to say from God that Rome, the greatest city on the planet, needed to hear. And, and Paul has something to say from God that his dearly loved brothers and sisters in Christ need to hear. And that is the gospel. 
you heard me right. It is our conviction at Emmaus Road Church that Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. We get this from a text like this. Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Verse 8. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Verse 11. I long to see you that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both your faith and my faith. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. For for many years, uh, my perception of the gospel, I think think it was severely truncated. (laughs) I... I associated the gospel mainly with those closing minutes of an evangelistic sermon when the preacher would invite people to turn and to trust Christ. The gospel was simply the beginning of the Christian life. It was the doorway in. And once you were in... The gospel was no longer necessary. So, all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. God loves you. Sent his son to die for your sins. Jesus' death atones for your guilt. Turn to Jesus. Entrust yourself to Jesus. His righteousness will be credited to you. You will be saved. You are now accepted in Christ by God. You're in And then once you're in, and your spiritual status has changed, well, then you move on from the gospel to, you know, like more relevant things. Things like successful relationships, or, you know, realizing your full potential, or uh, becoming a well-adjusted person, or experiencing more joy and pleasure in intimacy, or managing your money and your time well, or reducing stress, or learning to accept yourself just the way you are, on and on and on and on and on, these relevant things. So the gospel as I perceived it was for people who had not trusted Jesus. The gospel's for sinners, not for saints. And into this perspective, Paul says, to all the saints whose faith is known in all the world, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. To you. So here's the sense of this text so far, right? Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians need to hear the gospel. Why? Why, you may ask. Why did Paul believe that the saints in Rome need to hear the gospel as much as the Greeks and the barbarians? Why do you and I need to hear the gospel today? Why did we need to sing the gospel 
again today? Why do your brothers and sisters in your missional community need to hear the gospel this week? Why do your brothers and sisters in your discipleship huddle need to hear the gospel this week? Paul was captured by this conviction. Why? Well, let's ask him. Paul, why are you so eager, so earnest, so energized to preach the gospel to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And Paul answers, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for or because I'm not ashamed. Paul is unashamed. Shame is a universal issue that we all understand, right? Shame is, interestingly, it's both, it's both an affect and it's an act. It's this horrible feeling of guilt, embarrassment, emotional pain that one feels on account of failure or, or when we don't measure up to the expectations of the people whose approval you want so very much or up to our own expectations. And in that sense, shame is an affect, right? It's something you feel within. But shame is also an act. Shaming is what happens when someone communicates to you that you have failed, you have fallen short, you don't measure up to their expectations. Shame, in this regard, can be a means of punishment. It's an expression of displeasure or disapproval or contempt. And whether we experience shame as a wound, or a weapon. Shame is a powerful motivator. It gets things done. And, and shame can be uh, the primary obstacle to preaching the gospel, not just to non-Christians, but to one another as Christians. Shame can be an obstacle to preaching the gospel to non-Christians, Shame can be an obstacle to us confessing our need of the gospel to one another. And so if we think that when Paul says, I'm not ashamed, and, and it's because he simply wasn't, you know, he, you know, he just had thick skin. He, he, he was not intimidated uh, by the disapproval of people or discouraged by his own shortcomings and, you know, embarrassed by all the you know, whatever, um, we don't know Paul. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom and of power. <laughs> so, friends... Paul consistently experienced legitimate fear of rejection. 
He, he experienced legitimate fear of physical harm. He'd been beaten multiple times. Paul was aware of his natural limitations. He repeatedly states in his letters that he lacked eloquence. I don't speak so good. Um, clarity, brevity in verbal communication. That was not his fastball. Tradition says he was short and bald and had bad eyes and a hook nose. Sounds like he had a great face for radio. Um, and, and, and if that were not enough to shame him into silence, yeah, he could replay the tapes of his own scandalous pre-Christian background, you know, how he had been directly responsible for the deaths, the deaths of many followers of Jesus, or the shame of his relational breakdown and the untenable situation he got into with John Mark and Barnabas and their incompatibility and this disappointing separation. When it comes to Paul's past, whether it's his appearance or his giftedness, Paul knows exactly what it feels like to be ashamed and self-conscious and afraid. And loved ones, this should come... (laughs) I think this should come to us as a penetrating word of encouragement. Real believers have real fears. Real believers face real shame. Can you think of anything that you'd be ashamed to tell your brothers and sisters in Christ in your discipleship huddle? I mean, are there, are there faith battles that you just can't talk about? Are there sins to repent of, but shame silences you? Well, then, clearly, you need the gospel. Something set Paul free from this crippling effect of shame. What is it? What is it? Well, let's ask him. Paul, why are you unashamed. What is it that's made such a difference in your life? And and Paul answers in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for or because it's the power of God. In the face of all of his self-perceived weaknesses, the game changer for, for Paul was the gospel. Milton Vincent, <clears throat> he, he's the one that wrote that little, that little booklet we, we give out to people who are new to us, um, the gospel primer. Milton Vincent writes, there is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, the shaming of my enemies and the lies of the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. (laughs) What does that mean? I think shame in general is, it's often most commonly a result of criticism, right? Right? 
And criticism in the broadest sense is any judgment made about you by another which declares that you fall short of some particular standard. That standard may be God's standard, it may be somebody else's standard, it could be a true standard, fair, it might be wrong and unjust, false standard. This criticism may come charitably or uncharitably. It could be offered gently with a view to correction or it could be weaponized with a view to inflicting hurt. So how then does rehearsing the gospel overwhelm such a thing? I believe that in turning to the cross, the cross of Christ, when we look at the cross of Christ, we agree with God's judgment, or to say it another way, his criticism, if you will, his criticism of us. The cross is an expression of God's judgment, his criticism of us. Romans 3.12, Paul writes, all have turned aside. No one does good. (laughs) We're all criticized by God if we agree with the gospel, if we agree with the cross of Jesus. And in entrusting ourselves to the cross of Christ, we're affirming this judgment of God, this criticism of God against us. If the gospel of Jesus' death on the cross says anything, it speaks about our shortcomings. It speaks of our sin. We're all sinners. But we also believe that the answer to sin lies in the cross, the gospel of the cross. Entrusting ourselves to Jesus' death on the cross means that I have been, I've been crucified with him. And so in the cross, I also agree with God's justification of me. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if God in Christ justifies me, if God in Christ accepts me and will never leave me or forsake me, well then who can be against me? Why should I feel insecure and fearful of criticism? So you see... Loved ones, the gospel is not simply the way in. And then then we can kind of file that back here someplace. You know, it's no longer relevant as we move on towards more practical matters. Nor is the gospel the mere presentation of, well, that's a good idea. Sweet, nice, nice, very nice. No, the gospel is the operation of a power. It's the power of God. The gospel is the dynamic operation of God's power. The gospel's more than just words. The gospel's more than just a message. The gospel is itself the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and accomplishes its greatest work. It functions. It does stuff. Powerful stuff. And Paul is so eager to preach this to believers and unbelievers. And it's because Paul is unashamed. That's what the gospel has accomplished. 
accomplished. Paul is unashamed because the gospel is the power of God that has delivered him from shame. So what does this power do? Well, let's ask Paul. Paul, tell us, what is God's power for? When we're preaching the gospel to one another, to ourselves, or to somebody who's never experienced the beauty of your grace, what does God's power do that makes such a difference? And Paul tells us in verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation. The word translated salvation also means freedom. Paul's unashamed of the gospel. He's eager to preach it to believers and unbelievers because it's the message of the gospel alone that saves. It's the message of the gospel alone that sets a soul free from the predicament that sin has left us in. Only the gospel can free us from the soul-crushing wounds of shame. Only the gospel can heal us from the brokenness of a life that sin has damaged and scarred. Only the gospel can bring recovery from a lifetime of walking on eggshells. Only the gospel can be, it's only through the gospel that we can be declared declared not guilty in the court of heaven. It's only the gospel that sets us free from God's condemnation. It's only the gospel by which we can be restored to fellowship and communion with our Father in heaven. It's only the gospel that can purchase peace and satisfaction for a thirsty and restless soul. Only the gospel can do that. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's no wonder then that the reason that Paul is... (laughs) He's consumed with the gospel and is eager to preach the gospel in spite of his discernible lack of rugged good looks or his lack of smooth oratory or his lack of -of state-of-the-art technology or his lack of the public's favor towards his high-profile ministry. Why? All those things... All they do is have the potential of inclining people to trust in a man. Only the message of the gospel can set spiritual captives free and save. How does it do that? Well, let's ask him. (laughs) Paul, how does the gospel work? according to Romans 1, 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So the way the gospel works is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, the gospel reveals, it reveals how a righteous God can forgive sinners 
without letting sin go unpunished. Gospel answers the question, how can a righteous God declare sinful people righteous and God remain righteous himself? There are those who believe that a person is made right with God and considered right by God by simply doing what's right. Just do what's right. (laughs) Straighten up. And then, faced with how impossible that is, find it acceptable to say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Not perfect, but I try. Sometimes I try hard. And, you know, if I could just make a few behavioral modifications, I'll be okay with God. But in light of the fact that God sent his son to suffer, to suffer shame, to be condemned again and again, to be criticized again and again, to be lied about again and again, to be slandered again and again, to be stripped naked publicly and killed, a criminal's death, to bleed and die on a cross for the sins of his people. Can we really can we really believe that God would allow sinners into heaven for simply trying hard? Loved ones, Jesus' death reveals that none can justify themselves before God through a gospel of moral improvement. Even on our best days, we really aren't all that good. In Romans 3.20, Paul writes, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So get over that one. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there is a righteousness from God that is revealed in the gospel, a righteousness apart from trying harder, a righteousness that is from faith. It's from faith and it's for faith. It is a righteousness summarized by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So so God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus who knew no sin. If Jesus had not been perfectly free from sin, well then his sacrificial death would have had no significant justifying effect. His dying would have been inconsequential and we could not have been saved. But Jesus did live a perfect life, free from sin. He didn't He didn't become a sinner on the cross. He became sin itself. And so God takes his dearly loved son, a sinless sacrifice, and crushes him in our place. And in the cross, in Jesus' death on the cross, God shows his righteousness. The righteousness of his justice in punishing sin. And God shows the righteousness of his mercy in pardoning sin. Sin. And Jesus is made to be sin so that we, who are the sinful ones, might become the righteousness of God. God does not justify those who do their best. God justifies those who entrust themselves with all their sin and all their shame to the righteousness-fulfilling sacrifice of another. 
We make no contribution except to trust in the death of a perfect Savior. It is from faith, for faith. It is from beginning to end, faith, by faith, in the fulfillment of the Old Testament teaching, the righteous live by faith. If you're going to be righteous, you're living by faith. You're living by faith in the righteousness of another. All your life. Loved ones, listen carefully. By being made sin, Christ is regarded by God as though he had lived our sin-filled lives. And we are regarded by God as though we have lived the perfect and sinless life of Christ. And you and I need to be reminded of this every day, week in, week out. And so why, Paul? Why are you so why are you so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? It's because I'm not ashamed. And Paul, why is it that you are unashamed? Because the gospel is the power of God. But Paul, the power of God for what? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. How does that work? It's on account of the righteousness of God vindicated by the death of a perfect sacrifice credited to those who receive it by faith and trust themselves to it as long as they live. Paul, that is, that's truly good news. But who's it for? Who is the gospel for? Isn't the gospel just for some people? Isn't the gospel just for those who have never trusted Christ before? Verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God loves to save. The salvation that we're talking about here, this freedom from condemnation, this freedom from shame in the eyes of God and the eyes of men, it's for everyone who believes. God gave His Son to bear the punishment for the sins of all who believe. All who believe. The only ones who will not experience God's power to save are those who harden their hearts. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, we're coming to this. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Why should that be you? Respond to God's kindness and mercy. The the gospel is the power of God for salvation for you and for everyone. Anyone and for everyone who believes, will you turn to him and trust him now? Will you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ by preaching this good news to one another this week? Let's pray.
Lord, we could say those words. We could articulate those words. We could preach those words. But we're mindful that, Lord, unless you vindicate those words and demonstrate that there actually is the very power of God in them. The power of God begetting faith. The power of God opening blind eyes. The power of God making hard hearts tender, responsive. The power of God actually granting Repentance. They're just words. So we're trusting in what you have said, not what I said. (laughs) We're trusting that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We turn to you, Lord. We look to you. We look to you now and we're trusting you for forgiveness, we're trusting you for freedom, we're trusting you for transparency and humility, and we're trusting you to pour out joy and the fullness of your spirit upon your people. Yeah, we're trusting you, Lord, to accomplish your gospel purposes among us now. As we as we sing the gospel to ourselves and to one another again, now in Jesus' name.